Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. It, it's about you fulfilling your unique role in the universe, you know. And, and then once you find that voice, that's your success, right? That, that you can measure your success that way. And, and then you don't have to be so concerned about what other people say. This episode was due to be called Why Art Matters. It's a conversation with the leading contemporary artist Makoto Fujimura, who is based in New York. I first met Mako over 20 years ago in my previous life as an artist. So I was keen to chat with him about the value of art. But as I was preparing for our discussion, I came across Mako's interest in the historic craft of Kintsuki. The word means golden repair, and it is an ancient way to honour and mend broken crockery using lacquer. The process draws attention to the cracks in the restored pottery rather than hide them. And it's become a powerful metaphor for Mako to reflect on our modern culture. So rather than talk about why art matters, we settled on discussing why Kintsuki matters. Mako talks about its history and its enduring relevance to help us make sense of our times. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Mako, welcome to Why It Matters. Oh, it's great to be with you today. Bit of context for our listeners. Where are you? What part of the world are you in at the moment? <laughs> I am in Princeton, New Jersey uh, this morning, and uh, that's where my studio, uh, my farmhouse uh, studio is. And uh, this is where I get I got to be quarantined for <laughs> the last two years, so I, I have been very productive here. Fantastic. And you're in your studio every day, I guess? I try to. Uh, my uh, wife, my bride, is, is a advocate, international advocate, lawyer. So she she has her office in about an hour north of here, near Washington Bridge, and so we also have an apartment. So we go back and forth, but I, I most most of the days you'll find me here. Fantastic. And how did you? What led you into art? How did you become an artist? I was always an artist. I have a painting that my mother kept when I did. Apparently, she said when I was two and a half, but I don't know if that's true. <laughs> um, it's probably around three, but that she, she kept. She didn't tell me this until I graduated from college, and I told her that I wanted to try to make it as an artist. And and she framed this painting and gave it to me. <laughs> and and it's, it's a wonderful painting, Michael. I, I look at it every morning. Um, it, it has no ego whatsoever. It's just very playful lines, but line, lines and colors that are um, uh, really my signature today. <laughs> you know, it's the same colors. And, and I, I believe I was in Sweden at the time. I, I, my father is a scientist, so I, I was born in Boston and went to Sweden <laughs> before going to Japan. So I, I think it was somewhere that, along um, that track, I, I painted this painting. So I, I think my mother saw something in me very early. She kept on telling me about her two uncles. One was a painter, a very well-known painter, and uh, one was a playwright and letting me know how hard it was for them. But she obviously saw something in me and and stewarded that, uh, and and that was that was her way of 
telling me that, you know, I saw your gift early and I'm, I'm glad you're going to try to make it as an artist, you know. And I guess if you could say a little bit about your kind of your inquiry within art and you've become yeah. associated with this phrase of slow art. Um, yes. I wondered if you could kind of give some context for what that means and also what is the inquiry that you are engaging with as you make your make your work? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, slow art uh, flows out of the, the traditional painting method called Nihonga that I spent six and a half years in Japan as a national scholar to look into 16th and 17th century part of Japan. Uh, and, and the technique now is called Nihonga, Japanese style painting. And it uses pulverized minerals and gold and paper and silk. And, and it is slow because you're basically making your own paint and uh, then applying it over and over. Some of my paintings have over 100 layers um, before I start. And in order to do those layers, you, you have to the, mix the pigments. And that sometimes will take up to a week. Huh. So it... You know, when I'm in my studio, I'm in different time zone, and uh, it for anybody who who gardens, I, I think it's very similar to the rhythm of gardening because the weather affects these layers, and it, it's slow. Um, you, you have to wait until the pigments settle. Even in mixing, there's 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 a lag time uh, that you you want to let the pigments really be saturated with this hide glue that I use. And 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 so, you know, you, you don't try to do things fast and you let things be dormant. Uh, you, you want layers to settle over time. So, you know, sometimes you're waiting uh, a month before you do the next steps. And, and so that that rhythm suits, suits what I what I do and how I think. And that pace, what does that pace kind of provide for you in that space? Uh, I imagine it's fairly reflective and contemplative. So what what do you find is the the fruit of that pace? Absolutely. And, you know, it was uh, David Brooks of New York Times who actually connected me to the slow art side of things and you know he said my something like my my art is a small rebellion against the quickening of time um and lovely phrase and i think it's it it really is contemplative and and my my art requires 10 to 20 minutes to actually slow down to actually see it um you know most people may, may pass by it's some of them looks monochromatic and uh, because they are layered you know our eyes can see the layers but our minds will shut it down so you know you you just walk right by past it it's a white painting or it's a blue painting and but you know david and others have uh, i i asked them to but you know sat in front of my paintings and after about 10 minutes he said i i couldn't believe my eyes because all of a sudden the entire galaxy was opening up to me and and that's that's the kind of experience we can have uh not just with my paintings but with the world uh, but but we are so you know busy running from a to z very quickly now that we forget that the world of abundance is in front of us and there are burning bushes everywhere and uh we we just as one theologian put it we, we just stop 
taking our shoes off and and really beholding the world as it is, as fractured as it is. And um, it, it can be a very beautiful experience. So my art tries to uh, depict that sense. And those who are willing to slow down a bit can see that through my art. Hearing you there talk about the sort of fracture and and the beauty of fracture kind of leads us on to the the kind of core topic of the podcast, which is kintsugi, which I know is of, of real interest to you both as a tradition, but also as a metaphor. I wonder if you could just start by explaining what is kintsugi and, and what is its heritage, its history? Mm-hmm. I have a chapter in my uh, new book, Out Plus Faith, A Theology of Making on Kintsugi. Kintsugi is a tradition that I encountered actually when I was looking at 16th and 17th century traditional Japan. And there's a remarkable history of J- Japanese tea, which was refined by a uh, tea master, Senorikyu, in 16th century. And out of that flows almost everything we know about Japan. The concept of wabi-sabi was refined during that time. And uh, this idea that imperfections and brokenness is an entry point into uh, even more transcendent beauty, deeper uh, integration. And in Western terms, you know, when something breaks, we throw it away or uh, we super glue it back together to make it look like nothing's ever happened. But in Japan, when something breaks, uh, at least traditionally, they value what is broken more than they value the original. So uh, kintsugi means kin, means gold, and tsugi means to mend. But tsugi also means to pass pass something down to the next generation. And often when high tea um, ceramic ware breaks because of many earthquakes that Japan has, they, the family of tea masters will keep the, the fragments for many generations before even attempting it to mend it. And after several generations, you know, the children will um, at some point give give that fragment to uh, Kintsugi master, who, who is a J- Japanese lacquer master. Japan lacquer is called urushi. And urushi master will um, uh, mend it, uh, but highlighting the fractures and, and making the imperfections uh, more beautiful gold. So it, what looks like um, fissures look uh, turns out to be rivers and mountains and landscape and and um, the, as a result, the resulting kintsugi bowl is far more valuable than the original, as valuable as that may be. So that tradition is absolutely remarkable and inspiring. And it wasn't until recently that we could use Japan lacquer. Um, There's a newer type of lacquer made based on cashew nuts that uh, a kintsugi master in Japan uh, basically created because he wanted to, after the March 11th, 2011 uh, tsunami, uh, great Tohoku tsunami and earthquake, there were so many families 
you know, who uh, and orphans in in actually in grade schools, they they their entire village was washed away and uh, in northern Japan. And he he wanted to bring kintsugi to them because oftentimes he said, strangely enough, the only thing that remain after tsunami washes the entire home is uh, ceramics, broken ceramics left and. So these children will bring them in, but he said, I, I didn't want to mend it for them. I wanted them to learn how to mend this. So unfortunately, Japan lacquer is notoriously difficult technique to master. And it is um, the one third of the population is highly allergic to it. So it's not something oh, children can use. So he <laughs> had to come up with an alternative method and he worked with a fishing rod company actually to find these cashew-based uh, urushi that dries quicker. Uh, sometimes urushi also takes about a year to dry, so it is really yeah. slow art. So yeah. cashew-based urushi can be done in like three hours. And and so he packed these in a medicine bag, literally, and brought it, brought it up to Northern Japan. I got to meet him and interview him. And there's a little footage of this uh, through a documentary team that was accompanying me in Japan. And it was just a remarkable story. So I, I, I had him come to U.S. and introduce this work way of doing kintsugi. And, um, and we developed it. My wife uh, is now running an entity called Academy Kintsugi. And uh, we have been training instructors to do this. Many artists are good at this. So we, we've identified about a dozen or more people who, who can run these um, Kintsugi experiences all across America, but we, we are invited to UK Parliament in, in the fall, next fall, to bring this uh, at a very high level peacemaking, oh, because wow. it is literally Kintsugi and Art of Tea was developed during the feudal war times, and Senorikyu was, was, was a leader who, who determined to create this art of peace that in, in the midst of you know, darkness in the midst of warfare. Basically, he um, he would serve tea to the the highest level. You know, shoguns, and um, you know, he insisted that they consider peace a moment in time and and talk about slow art. I mean, that this is the origin um, slow art as I see it. And you mentioned there that the family would often hold the fragments for a period of time before moving to a Kintsugi master to repair. What does that symbolize? What is the holding of the fragments symbolize at that moment? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And it's something that I think we need to consider in our time, in our fractured time. And I think for me, I'm, I'm a survivor of 9-11. I, I, I lived three blocks away and I was uh, stuck underneath uh, in a subway stop uh, when the towers collapsed. And my three children grew up as ground zero children. And so, you know, after a, a huge traumatic event like that, you know, you're, you're spending three, basically every day trying to recover. And my art speaks of that. Um, and and the, the reason why I think I was drawn into slow art was the reality in front of me, you know, this gaping hole called Ground Zero. 
it's some, something you, you can't fix, <laughs> you know, certainly yeah. not by yeah. yourself. You try, and, and we're fortunate that we have brand new buildings out there. You know, there are many places in the world where that's that can't happen. You know, it, it just remains ground zero forever. But for New York City, that meant rebuilding. And, you know, you spend so much effort and adrenaline goes into, you know, just trying to do that as quickly as possible. And then the adrenaline runs out and, and you're, you're going through utter darkness and depression and post-trauma and, you know, entire neighborhood is going through it. And I, I think it, it means when, you, when you're in traumatic times, you know, the key was at the time and, and, and uncertainty of the future, you know, the best thing to do is to look straight into ground zero, really, the, the brokenness in front of you and inside of you, and not to try to fix it. You know, it's kind of a paradoxical thing, but to behold it as something that is sacred. And, and that, that sense was very present when, when during the ensuing 10 years, there was something very sacred about you know this place called Ground Zero and 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 Ground Zero that we we all have, in in some level, uh, personal or public, and and you know we we try to hide and run away from it perhaps or fix it you know as quickly as possible. But and I think the memorial speaks of that the Arad design and Liberskin design that Ground Zero memorial if you were to visit it uses the two vacant footprints of the two towers as waterfalls. And I, I think that's that's a powerful reminder that something that has destroyed so many lives is is now a beginning of something else. And you know that that is perhaps the best way to honor the victims. But but in mm. order to get there, we, we do have to have a contemplative way of beholding the fractures and looking at faces, you know, and and then letting that speak to us. I know that uh, through listening to reading your books and, and, and listening to your podcast, Culture Care. Yes. Uh, and you use kintsugi as a as a kind of metaphor for thinking about what's going on in culture and the podcast as i understand it you're inviting people artists musicians all sorts of different people into your kintsugi workshop to consider the the idea of the brokenness and the fracture of culture and and how we kind of make sense of the world so could you just talk about why kintsugi matters for you now mm-hmm. in our Kintsugi seems to capture, unfortunately, uh, all the brokenness and fragmentations that we are experiencing culture um, in America, in particular, culture wars have become culture. (laughs) And uh, Mm. um, I've always said when I, you know, culture care movement began as a kind of a nonviolent resistance to culture wars. And and I always said that, you know, culture wars will lead to real wars, uh, real violence. So obviously, on you know, January 6th, look, look at the U.S. Capitol being seized. I mean, that that is a direct, to me, result of fighting culture wars. The culture wars, no one wins. You know, that's the thing. If you win, you lose. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense to look at cultural 
territory is as a battleground. Because every time you fight, uh, you wage a fight, you demonize the other side, and you shrink your own territory every time you win. And so you're defending things that you never thought you would have to defend. It accelerates the process. So every, everything that we care about, about human lives, uh, environment, you know, even, even uh, uh, you know, expansion of uh, our businesses, uh, relies on this abundance mentality or assumption of abundance, perhaps, that is, I, I believe, built into the universe, that, that has been proven over and over to be the case. And, and yet we, we act as if we live in a scarcity mindset. We live in zero-sum game. And, and, and the result of that is, is, is catastrophic to, uh, to, to our lives and, and, and also creation care, right? The, the, the idea that we need to be caring for our environment is part, you know, has become part of the culture wars narrative. And that's why in the U.S. it's so difficult to talk about reality of climate change and so forth. But but even during the shutdown, you know, the pandemic, we we experienced part of that with with, with this uh, you know crazy uh, reality of people resisting so much of what science has given given us as as uh, a way to move forward. I, I think it just it just shows, you know, no matter which side of the aisle you're on. Uh, it, it just shows that our ideological uh, footprints have sh- shrunk and we're mm. trying to desperately defend something that is that is no longer viable for the totality of culture. So so we have to find uh, an antidote, uh, alternative, and uh, cultural care is to look at uh, uh, cultural grounds, cultural uh, land as an ecosystem uh, as, uh, or uh, a garden to steward. And, um, the, you know, when you change the metaphor, uh, I think it was Joseph Campbell that says, you know, if you want to change the world, change the metaphor. And I think, you know, if you look at whatever you're trying to preserve and protect as as an ecosystem to manage uh, a garden to steward, you look at it differently. Uh, you, you're cultivating the soil rather than poisoning, <laughs> you know, the weeds. Um, you, you're trying to take care of the pollinators uh, like honeybees, you know, that, that are decimated because we have used pesticides, you know, to try to control one aspect when we shouldn't have been, we didn't know what, what that would do. And, you know, honeybees are pollinators that seeks out um, out in the world. And, and when they discover, they tell others and they 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 go and um, get the nectar back into the honeycomb to create you know honey <laughs> and 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 so there's actual cultural products that are being decimated when we fight culture wars that artists like the bees are pollinators of seeking out beauty and pollinating beauty making the making the culture fruitful in in the process but also bringing bring back uh, to to create be- beautiful products, you know, uh, that is good to taste, and and we we have forgotten that role uh, as, as as cultures, and um, and we we with our sight of 
what we are, you know, why, why we are supposed to be stewards of the land of culture and uh, the land period, but land of culture as well. The word stewards is really important, isn't it? Because it implies a sense of responsibility and oversight yes. and uh, accountability as well. Yes. And it's striking, you know, you're talking there very much, obviously, from a kind of cultural, artistic, creative context. But in the world that I inhabit, which is largely in brand and in business, we're also seeing a trickle through of this thinking so that in for many, there's a lot of conversations that are happening about purpose. Yes. And what is business for? Uh, and what is the consequence of that business? Both, obviously, you know, for the shareholder, possibly, or for the kind of for the owner, but actually, what are the implications, the ripples beyond that? And so, in the world that I occupy, we spend a lot of time thinking about brands, yes, and the purpose of the brand. You know, how does this product service make things better? I just wonder, is there in that metaphor of Kintsugi, what what could the business community uh, and the kind of the commercial brand community learn from the principles and the metaphor of Kintsugi? Yeah, the marketing branding side, you know, the suspicion there is that, you know, branding creates a need that doesn't exist, that is not real in some way. You know, you're, you're setting a product that, that the person doesn't really need. But but that's that's a scarcity mindset, you know, mentality. It, if, if you assume that, there is abundance, uh, as Adam Smith, you know, the, is in the, in the, uh, the original capitalism, the Scottish Enlightenment, you know, fathers of economics. I mean, assumed then then the abundance will lead us to make different decisions about brand. So, what do we assume there? Well, we assume that people have infinite values. And therefore, social capital can create create infinite good and infinite profits. Actually, uh, in in perhaps in a different way than the sheer bottom line of one, you know, material capital profit motives can give us. And if you assume in abundance, you assume that creativity and imagination is also infinite. So artists who harness that and refine that are are the greater capital than than the the actual material capital that you have. If if we learn to harness those things, so there's social capital, there's creative capital. Now you need some kind of bottom uh, base for material capital and and financial, um, you know, uh, uh, baseline. But that that is also that is the only limited capital, right? So the creative capital and, and social capital are infinite. So, you know, we ought to be looking at branding to flip, you know, let's say if you imagine a triangle between the three, um, you know, of capitals, I, I call it rehumanized capital, but the bottom line, you know, the typical, you know, financial and material capital, which is limited, is at the base. And if you see two other sides of the triangle as social capital and creative capital, which are infinite, uh, right now, you know, we have we have the base as only perhaps um, as profit um, of, uh, of the capital that you can measure, right? <clears throat> so that, that's why it's, it's so easy to, 
basial, uh, you know, success model on that. But but there are, you know, let's let's say as Adam Grant of Wharton School have, you know, abundantly proven that empathy <laughs> actually helps to improve that bottom line <laughs> greatly, uh, even though you assume in a scarcity Darwinian mindset that empathy is, is your enemy. You know, you want your employees to be, you know, like uh, sharks swimming in the waters, you know. But but it turns out to be that's not the case. You know, successful, enduring companies have high level of empathy. And, and this is proven in sports teams as well. You know, you, you if you have a, you know, superstar, you know, you, you can probably win a couple basketball games, but you can't win a soccer game with one great player. You know <laughs> that kind of thing. So, so, so teamwork and empathy level and, and culture of the company needs to be taken seriously. And if you're branding the abundant culture, that is infinite. And and you you're going to do you know not only su- uh, prove success to the product that you're marketing, but you're also creating a paradigm in which the employees are happier. Uh, therefore, they stay longer. Yeah. Um, you know, they will raise their be able to raise their family. Family um, that that it's, it's what I call a generative model, rather than a, a scarcity model. And you you want to we want a brand that is generative, right? So you want to you know you want to communicate something that grows uh, into the lives of people who are receiving it. So you know it's not the bottom line of that is not to say well our product is better than the others, but it, it, it's saying that our, our product actually raises the level of whatever the category of this product, and and when you do that, then you know actually everybody benefits um you know perhaps even your competitors but what you're doing is you're changing the game and changing the definition of success right and i I always tell a young artist you know don't measure your success by what the world tells you what you know the critics say well how much you sell your work or how much you know you're able to have so, so many exhibits or publications measure your you know you are an artist which means you get to define your own success <laughs> yeah so yeah. learn to define your own success in your own way in a unique you know makeup that you have been given to um, to do in this world and and then and you know just measure your success in in ways that will help you to grow you know that that is generative that is not you know in competition with others because i beat this person i win you know it's it's about you fulfilling your unique role in the universe you know and and then once you find that voice that's your success, right? That that you can measure your success that way. And and then you don't have to be so concerned about what other people say. I think another aspect to this is that obviously we've, we're living in a time um, of change and transition. We've been through some significant events in the last couple of years that have really unseated us and unsettled us. Uh, and 
I guess we're kind of uh, we're holding the fragments still, aren't we? Of, mm-hmm. uh, in the kind yeah. of kintsugi sense of kind of making sense of what is what is it that has we've we've endured. I think what has struck me in the reading that I've done of your material is that sense that your the kintsugi principle is that we're moving forward to something new rather than kind of returning to something. We're we're not just fixing and mending to a past glory. Yes, we're actually. The Kintsugi master is thinking, what is the new thing that this uh, object becomes? Um, so I'm wondering, as we think about the fragments that we are we are holding now culturally and at a societal level, whether in business, creativity, culture, what are the principles? How do the principles of Kintsugi help us to make sense? Yeah of the transition that we're now we're now in and we're now enduring. Thanks for asking that. Uh, we have to learn that disruptions are opportunities. Um, we, we had to really face untenable reality of being, you know, part of this pandemic. And I, I, I've done a lot of thinking. Um, and I think Kintsugi metaphor really helps here is if you can look at the fragments, behold the fragments and look at it and behold it until you, you can begin to name the beautiful in it. Then you're on your way to create new passages of neurons in your brain, right? That, 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 that is actually um, this, um, clinical psychologist friend of mine said that Kintsugi actually helps you to rewire your brain. And and it's, it's, it's what happens in trauma is that these connections get severed. And what we need to do is to reroute the disconnected, you know, parts. And and but 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 that's that's what Kintsugi does is to it it doesn't rewire in the same way. It rewires in a new way. And so this can be applied to life. This can be applied to business. But. You know, if you face setbacks, we do all we can to fix that, right? And we, we try to move forward in life or business saying, no, that, you know, this, this was a learning experience and I can, I can mm-hmm. you know, move forward. But we don't really consider that maybe the networks need to be rewired in a new way rather than the old way, old patterns that will repeat itself. And in order to do that, you, you really need community, actually. And, you know, Kintsugi is, uh, we, we have designed our Kintsugi experiences, so it actually creates cultural care community. It's a community formation groups. And that means that you get to journey with others who have brought in their broken pieces. And instead of, you know, telling each other, we have to fix this, we we pause and we, we say, well, let's, let's behold, <laughs> you know, let's behold each other as we are, acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the darkness. But let's do it because I see beauty in your brokenness, you know, and you can mm-hmm. see in mine that maybe I, I can't even see myself. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of reflection can lead to new discoveries, new new connections that we never thought was possible. So I, I think the pandemic gives us an opportunity to do that. Uh, there's not a single person on this earth that has not been affected by uh, COVID. 
uh, and mm. that's a remarkable statement to make. I, I, yeah, I don't think yeah. in our time, our lifetime, that you can ever say, you know, 9-11 affected me directly, but yeah. and affected others differently, but I can't say that about that trauma. We are all survivors yeah. in 2022. We all survived. Yeah. And, and that means that we have something to share uh, in our brokenness, in our trauma, and, and again, not to try to fix it, or to try to minimize the pain that we're going through. But it's an opportunity for us to share and to say, okay, so this is not something we can fix. We can't bring those people who passed away back. But what is, um, uh, the, you know, our responsibility to each other and and how, how do we become a community of um, people artists and people who, uh, you know, uh, in business and, and so forth, behold this fracture. How, how do we, you know, open our hands and bring the pieces with us to share? Because that is the beginning of something new that, that, that can break open. And if we look back in history, it was in the dark ages, it was the, you know, the Black Plague, right? that led to the Renaissance. So this is not inconsequential. It, it, it is actually the fabric of civilization as we know it. And that, that kind of, I mean, resetting is kind of the wrong word, but that sort of, that schism yeah. that has sent a kind of shockwave gives us pause yes. to, 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 to reflect. Uh, coming back to that kind of metaphor again, and we have these fragments, what is it that we still carrying? I mean, there's the whole vernacular of the kind of the new normal uh, that kind of exists, <laughs> yeah. you know, that we're in the kind of work home hybrid. But actually, it is looking at those fabrics and uh, fragments and working out what is of enduring value here. What is a, what is it that we can we can hold on to and take with us into the kind of the new framework, the new uh, ways of thinking. Yeah, and and one thing that is for sure, and I can attest to this after. 20 years after 9-11 is that these fractures are not going away. You know, we will find 20 years from now these hairline fractures that we didn't know that was there. And it's going to come out. And and so, you know, if, if I were creating a business, I, I would focus <laughs> directly on the fact that people will be wounded carrying this for a long time and that they need care for that and and the kind of branding is not toward perfectionism but toward acknowledgement of each other's pain and to be able to come together in that right and 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 any kind of device whether it be zoom or you know whatever that that is allowing us to connect you know rather than trying to simply simply just be a mechanism for communication if it can become a kind of a fellowship, you know, of how do you bond with each other, even though you can't be together, you know, how do you create, a, you know, and technology is something that is has a capacity to do that, but we don't look at it that way. We look at it in instrumental terms. We look at it in terms of efficiency. We look at it in terms, you know, what if we made um, kind of a Zoom that makes us slow down, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, you know that, that takes advantage of our senses more, you know, or, you know, the presence of aroma or, you know, so, so that, that kind of 
thinking is is actually what artists are doing all the time. A theater director is saying, how can I impact my audience, right, in, in enduring ways, not just, you know, just superficially creating this spectacle, right? How do I communicate something much deeper than what my material can allow, right? So, so that that is true in film. That is true in you know every art form. So artists are kind of thinking this way already, and, and it will be immensely helpful for businesses to you know at least speak to an artist, if, if not hire one, <laughs> you know, to be an artist, <laughs> not 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 to do yeah. not to come up with you know coding, but but to to think like an artist, you know, kind of kind of the, that this abundance mindset. If if an artist can get there, <laughs> that's that's my job to help artists to think in abundance rather than scarcity but you know if they can do that then you know all they need is very limited resource limited bottom line but they can create something and that's what kintsugi does right kintsugi shows us that the worst outcome is the best outcome it becomes the entry point into something new and and so then then we don't have to be afraid to experience traumatic times as hard as that that is that is and as painful as that is that is, that is real uh, you know it's, it's you can't just wash it away and when we do Kintsugi experience we tell people don't break any you know ceramics just to do this there's enough brokenness in the world you know we don't we don't we're not here to, we have enough already yeah we have yeah. enough we just don't know how to look for it Right, it's amazing. Like in Western cultures, when we do these experiences, you know, people say, "Well, I don't have anything broken," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I used to say that myself. Like when I started the journey with a Kintsugi master, I said, "You know, I, I don't know if I can find anything." And after like two years of doing it, like I see brokenness everywhere. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like you know, mm-hmm. once you start opening your eyes, you you start to realize, like, oh my goodness, there's full of chips. My my coffee mugs are full of hairline fractures. You know, I just didn't notice it. You know, and and that kind of thing. So we're not exalting brokenness, but but it, it, at the same time, you know, I think I think our relationship to the world can be reframed through kintsugi. It's a present reality that that brokenness is a kind of present yes. reality. That... Yes. If we if we can face our ground zero, right? I, I had to get out of my loft, face face ground zero to come home, right? And mm-hmm. and that that was so painful at the time, knowing what my neighbors were going through. You know, lives of people who are deeply deeply affected. But it helped me to think about world of art, world of imagination, facing ground zero. Right. And and what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that, you know, you can get over it. <laughs> you, it's a continual process of sanctification. It, it can also have a purging effect. You know, I, I painted over and over these images called water flames after 9-11 because I use water, but I, I can I, I was painting flames over and over because I wanted to somehow turn my trauma of looking at flames of destruction and turn them into flames of sanctification. I, I, mm. I had to do it over and over until my brain rewired so that when I look at images of 9-11, which I, I still have difficulty, but 
I, I can see my children's faces, you know, I can see their friends' faces, I can see and, and so much damage inflicted in their lives and, and collateral damage that came out of that too. But, but those are the images that I keep pushing through because I, I you know, I have de- determined, um, you know, after I went through my depression that this is the only way to go. I, I can't, I can't go back the other way because th- that I, I know is deadly and uh, will lead to despair. So I, I, all I can do is, and fortunately there are amazing artists like Frangetico painting in, in the Black Plague, Shakespeare who built his theater outside of London because of the Black Plague, you know, and, 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 and T.S. Eliot who wrote Four Quartets, traumatized by, you know, the Blitz. C.S. Lewis, Cheryl Tolkien, all these people wrote out of their trauma, right? So, so I can ask them to help me see and to hear and to reconstruct, to regenerate um, all, all, all the Kintsugi um, uh, process that needs to be done. Thank you, Mako. It's been an absolute delight and a privilege to discuss this with you. I really appreciate you coming on. We have a light, a kind of final uh, sort of slot on our podcast that we call Worth a Look, where we ask our guests to recommend something that they've watched, read, listened to that they think our listeners would enjoy engaging with. Is there anything within your the kind of vista of experiences at the moment that you would be prepared to recommend? Absolutely. I, I have been uh, part of a group goes to Sundance Film Festival every year. And last two years, we haven't been. It's been remote. But I just watched the documentary, which, which is so powerful. It's called Aftershock. Aftershock is about what happens when a pregnant mother, expecting mother, who is African-American, goes into a hospital in U.S., it is absolutely horrifying and and also it reveals the fracture of at least you know American culture and American uh, health system. But it is also a film that really is Kintsugi. Uh, at the end of it, you feel like you have been privileged to know these fathers who have lost their wives who have to raise their children by themselves, but they are speaking in, in, in a way that gives us hope. So that it's a powerful, powerful documentary. It's called Aftershock. Thank you, Mako. And Mako, thank you so much for joining us on Why It Matters. It's been an absolute treat to have you. It's been great to be with you, Mako. Thank you. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>